0: Hey everyone, welcome back to the Golfers Journal podcast presented by Titleist, the number one ball in golf. My name's Tom Coyne, senior writer at the Golfers Journal, and I know a lot of our subscribers are into great golf photography. Maybe that's why you subscribe to the Golfers Journal because I think in every issue we feature the best images out there. Uh, And in Golfers Journal number 12, we featured some work by Charles Lindsay, who has published two very successful golf photography books, Lost Balls and Bad Lies and Even if you didn't read that great interview or see some of those images in the Golfer's Journal, you've likely encountered some of his iconic golf pictures somewhere out there. They're truly unique, really unlike any golf imagery you can find anywhere. And that's maybe because Charles himself is perhaps unlike any photographer out there. I think even to call him a photographer probably describes less than 10% of his extraordinary professional and intellectual life. I was really fortunate to speak with Charles recently and get to pick his brain about some of his interests, time, space, imagery, and yes, golf, absolutely golf. And to learn what it means to live one's life with the best job title I've ever heard, artist adventurer. So before we jump in with Charles and learn more about that, I just wanted to remind you of a few of our own Golfers Journal adventures. They're coming up soon. Our Ballyhack, our two-man event, uh, two-man broken tee event. It sold out quickly uh, down in Roanoke, Virginia. And I know it's in Roanoke because I'm going. Uh, It sold out quickly. We were able to add some more teams. So the field's been expanded. So quickly, jump in there. Get your group in. Take on myself and Casey Bannon, who I think are the chalk favorite right now, at least in my mind little bit of a dream team. So really looking forward to that. So jump in on Bally Hack, But I'm super excited about the pop-up event that's coming to my neighborhood. Or ish. Jeffersonville. The Jeffersonville pop-up. Casey is piloting the van to the Philadelphia area. And we're going to have a full day of golf. I think for 120 bucks, you get golf all day uh, at a Donald Ross gym. Uh, those of you who know the Philly golf scene, I mean, Jeffersonville is really a, a hidden gem, a public hidden gem, and a blast to play. And I'll be out there. Casey will be there. We'll show you the van. Casey said he's making cheesesteaks. We'll see how that works out. So a great Philadelphia day, and the value um, is ridiculous. Just, I don't know how many times we'll go around. We'll just keep going around until we don't. We have the place to ourselves, to Golfers Journal subscribers, and their friends. Bring a friend, bring a foursome, um, but we got the place to ourselves for the whole day for 120 bucks and you can't beat that. So there's going to be giveaways and shopping in the van and stuff like that too, as we do with all our events. So hopefully see you at Jeffersonville in Philly, or maybe down in Virginia. And Hey, number 13, call for journal 13. It's just around the corner somewhere. I don't know where we got the idea to do this thing called golden tickets. Uh, so in 13, there are going to be golden tickets, To some lucky subscribers. And you can cash in those tickets for Titleist Pro V1 golf balls. So as you're reading, be careful to look through every page and see if you're a winner. Cash them in for Titleist golf balls, which we know are the most trusted ball in golf for their superior speed, precision, and consistency. So look out for issue number 13 and reload on your Titleist ball supply. Thanks to our subscribers and our sponsors from the pages of the Golfer's Journal. And they include Titleist, Scotty Cameron, Link Soul, Oakley, new york private bank and trust and links and kings and now for some time with our friend charles Lindsay, whose life is so big i don't know how he fits it into 24-hour chunks or how we could fit it into a podcast but i think we did pretty well now when we spoke with him he was in his his barn his converted barn is his workspace in new york uh didn't perhaps have the best wi-fi he was leaving soon for Japan, which I believe is where he is now, but hey, you meet the artist adventurers out there where they can meet you. And as you'll soon hear, he's one of the rare people and rare golfers, certainly, who you'd listen to and just feel smarter for having heard him talk about his life. So listen up and expand your mind with perhaps the biggest mind I've ever met. Everyone speaking with Charles Lindsay. Thanks so much for joining us. You know, when we have guests on the podcast. I can usually introduce them in terms of um, their vocation or what they do or how they're related to golf in, in, in a sentence. Uh, it's a little more complicated uh, with you and your work. Uh, you know, I've I've been reading up on on, on your work and, and it seems to be there's there's a small part of it that's golf, uh, a very successful part of it, but you do so much more. I don't know how you sort of fit so many interests and endeavors into one day into one life even um but this description i come across of you as an artist adventurer uh how does one become an artist adventurer
1: well it's it's yes all good questions i think i'm a, probably a disaster for a marketing firm but um or a challenge and you know when you look at my website or my you know it's easy for people to think that it just sort of happened overnight, but in fact, it's kind of 30 years of following my nose into all kinds of different places with, with the, 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 the real foundation is a, is a deep interest in being in nature and outdoors. And so I've explored that from, you know, from the vantage point of fly fishing, which I've been doing since I was a kid and same with golf and, um, And then, you know, now I've I've branched off and been doing, you know, I did three projects at NASA Ames, which are more about, you know, perception, but, you know, all this stuff, what is perception? It's not just that we all perceive, hopefully every day, but, you know, I think golf is one way to access it. And I think of, I think of accessing, you know, accessing is interesting language. How do we access understanding ourselves, both as, you know, the homo sapiens we are and the individuals we are and... Um, I mean, the adventure, I started off as a. I I got a degree in exploration geology in Canada. I was born in San Francisco, but up outside of Toronto from when I was 10 on. And um, my first jobs were at golf courses. And um, I mean, I was an okay young golfer. I wasn't going to be a pro, but I, I was, I, I loved the game. And then I went out, I got a degree in exploration geology. I thought what, what profession would take me to the ends of the world, um, preferably places that had really good fishing and pay me to do it, which that did. And my early photography, so we're talking, you know, 20, 21, 22, 23, when I was in, stationed in the Arctic or Alaska, early photographs of wildlife um, sort of led very quickly to um, to using photography as the tool instead of the rock hammer, if you will. Right out of the gates after university, I went to Indonesia and, and began what what became living with a a truly intact stone age tribe every winter for 8 years that was my first book called mentowai shaman mentowai was the name and is the name of the tribe and what i was really interested in is learning how people lived you know one on one with nature you know stage 1 animists and you know that was in the 80s and i knew that you know kind of nature was going fast and people that lived that way uh, we're going fast; those cultures, and so I really jumped on that. And I really am a sort of that sort of old school adventurer is a big part of me. It's just gone on, and and um, and so golf. When I when I went back to it when I was mm-hmm. around 40, because I I sort of I, I left it when I was around 20, and I found it. I just found the game. You know, I always loved it. One of the things that I I really <clears throat> respect. And, and you know, not that we've met yet, but but like about how your feelings with the game, something we shared is this interest in celebration of really primitive courses. And I would say that, you know, like Barra, like in the Hebrides, in Scotland and Ireland, there are those courses and there are those courses in the U.S. if you look for them. But that's my favorite kind of golf. I like being where it's raw. I like being where it's windy. I like being where you lose golf balls connection is is you know, being a human in in nature in some forms. So I'm still exploring. I mean it's how it goes on. That's fascinating. So you weren't
0: photojournalism was something you came to through different avenues. You you that wasn't what you set out necessarily to do, even though you've become a very successful one, but you've also become very successful in different artistic mediums
1: as well. Well, the photography, I mean, as a kid, my parents were, I mean, my dad and his friends were, they were business people. I didn't grow up with, you know, the model of, Of we didn't know artists or, or really creative people. It wasn't the circle my sort of parents were in. And, you know, as I said, I went to geology. I mean, I was very, I was strong in science and math. And so the the camera, I mean, my dad gave me my first Nikon when I went up to the Arctic the first season And so I took to photography. I mean, I am an autodidact. I taught myself. And so then that became a tool with an assignment and the sort of credibility that went with that, which is part of being a photojournalist. You know, I would get access and all of a sudden you're meeting the the top people in whatever field it was. You know, you could get in and meet people and photograph. And if you do good work, then you get more opportunities. Somewhere late thirties, I got, instead of pointing my camera at other cultures and other people doing other things, I got interested in my, my experience. So the, you know, I did upstream, which was this book Aperture did kind of a cult classic and fly fishing, where I just photographed this environment that I, that I loved. And it's all point of view. It's not pictures of other people fishing. It's, it's strictly my point of view of, and it's, in some ways it's a, a stylized look at being a predator it's kind of an aestheticized view of being a predator i mean that's one of the things that happens when you're fishing or hunting is you go into that state you know we turn on all these aspects of ourselves that are that are very you know deeply rooted in our evolutionary history then i went on to golf and that was a little more humorous in that period, I was um, screwing around with cameraless photography in a dark room, photograms.
0: Wait, cameraless photography?
1: Um, That's where you, like a photogram, is you're in a dark room, classic analog dark room. You have an unexposed piece of paper, put a piece of glass on it. You turn on the light bulb and turn it off, develop the piece of paper and see what kind of image you get. And so I started doing those. That became what what was a, a book and a traveling show called um carbon and i was interested because the material the pigment i was using was carbon which of course is a building block of life and so that work that work was really when i went full-time into the arts um in fact the golf book um you know i really did that because i was thinking like how do i finance this more as a pursuit and um and the golf book, you know, I enjoyed doing the golf book, and it and it served that purpose. You know, it started to throw some money, and so it was really after that that I went full time. That the Lost Balls came out two thousand five, and um and then in two thousand, so I, I was on that course, and then I started showing these otherworldly images. Very, what I liked about them were they were abstract but highly resolved. So it's using a language of say electron microscopy, scientific imaging. I mean, I was it was the the illusion of scientific imaging, but even though we know better, photography presents a kind of a truth. And um, you know, and you you know, the essay, you know, in the magazine and the recent one, you know, speaks to that a bit about you know what is real and 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 what is not. And and then 2010, I met Jill Tarter, one of the most famous scientists, astro-scientists, and women scientists in the world. And she was very intrigued by carbon. So she's the famous uh, SETI uh, scientist, one of the great ones. Uh, Jodie Foster in the movie Contact is portraying Jill. Jodie Foster's con- uh, um, part is based on the life of Jill Tarter.
0: Yeah, how does SETI come into this? <laughs> I was reading about, you know your your involvement with and I'm like
1: so Jill invited me to the award ceremony called Wings Quest where women explorers are awarded and she came off the podium and I was a fan and happened to be there and went to see her speak and she came off the podium and I, I walked up and gave her a copy of Carbon it was actually before the book came out it was a, a catalog from a show and I said I'm Mrs. Tarter, I'm a I'm a huge fan thanks for doing what you're doing and, and I gave her the book and walked away And I was barely back to sort of my table in that room. And all of a sudden she goes, wait a minute, what are these pictures? We got to talk, come on, let's go in the foyer. So we don't interrupt sort of the next awardee. And we went out and we sort of became best friends in like four minutes. And, um, so she said, so what can I do for you? This is amazing. And I said, you can't do anything. You're already doing it. You're a role model. And she said, come on, you can do better. And I said, I'd love to visit the observatory. So we're in New York, this is in May of 2010, the observatory is far northern California uh, on the on the border of Lassen National Park. And um, she said, I'm I'm going to be at the observatory in a month. Why don't you come out? I said, I'll be there. And so I went out, so I would go up there every year and pick about 20 uh, students, uh, first year university students to, to one to go into Lassen National Park, but to be at the observatory and and learn about, you know, the search for transmissions from et the seti doesn't transmit they receive or they look to receive and so we started speaking and i said you know, she told me about the institute 100 of the world's top astroscientists studying the whole breadth of astronomy not just i mean seti research is part of it but then you have planetary astronomy and advanced computing and all kinds of things and so i said to her you know do you have an artist in residence program She said no people have talked about nobody's really run with it And she said, why don't we go back to the Bay Area, meet the CEO of the Institute and talk to him. You know, after a number of things, they they invited me to be the first artist at the SETI Institute. So SETI Institute, very close to NASA Ames, and they're in Mountain View. And I got through SETI in a position there, I got access to NASA Ames. And so, you know, that period from 2010, it really really cut me loose into this, this space, if you will, that I'm working in now with the... Yeah, I'm working with robotics and, and, and I'm making water sculptures, but from salvaged aerospace and biotech equipment. And I mean, I even look over my own shoulder at what's happened. It's breathtaking. It's not predictable. Um, you know, but I'm the kind of guy like a door opens. Somebody says let's go fishing in Northern British Columbia. I'm the guy that says go, let's go.
0: So when, just so people know that when we say SETI, we're talking, it's, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence is that
1: absolutely, and WAM and is the is the SETI Institute. So it's the search for extraterrestrial intelligence institute. There are other entities, but the SETI Institute was the first. So, you know, but anyway, you take it where you want. But I, I don't, I don't think all of this is that far from sort kind of yeah. <laughs> how does this? How does golf fit into this?
0: I mean, in terms of your your interests, your your passion, so, I mean, to do a book, to do two books of really interesting, you know, golf photography like no one else has done before, how do you go from one to the other so sort of naturally? I mean, it, it does, how does that all fit together? Well, so,
1: couple things with that. One is, um, there's, a, there's a way of thinking that I brought to the golf books that I actually, the, the upstream, the book of fly fishing had come previous to that and one of the things i did in the fly fishing work and and i mean and this really relates to an explorer's mentality i mean it's this idea of seeing things that haven't been seen before and then bringing it you know sharing that basically whatever that is one of the things i did in upstream was again i looked at what what was the photography that had been done around the topic of fly fishing in particular let's say fishing and you know, it was mainly photos of dudes groping fish, right? And, you know, sometimes people have pictures of people fishing in beautiful waters, but it's always like pictures of people. I don't know. It, it was that. Yeah. And if you're a fly fisherman, you would know that when you go to your favorite river or spot, the last thing you want to see is somebody standing in the water where you want to fish and get most of the books in a sense portray that. So, the other thing I was looking at in fly fishing was, you know, one of the things that happens with, with fishing in general is you get knots. And I don't mean the nice knots we tie intentionally. I mean the knots when we get screwed up, when, you know, all of a sudden, you know, the the bite's on and, and all of a sudden you got a mess of line at your feet or it's hooked up in the trees or something. And this happens to all fishermen. And there were no photographs of it. And I was like, well, that's bullshit. So the book I did is it's more elegant, but there are pictures in there. You know, I would... Get hooked in the bushes and instead of going, you know, oh, shit and not photographing it. And I have some ideas why why Westerners in particular don't do that. I mean, but, you know, I I was looking I was trying to look very closely at what was happening. You know, it's hard to take a photo of, of, of slipping on our ass on a muddy bank, but that would be a good one, too. Right. And so I always saw a lot of, you know, there's some irony and humor. So so that book came out and that book went really well. So then when I got into golf, again, I was just looking at, you know, what hadn't been seen, but what, but what was part of my experience. And, you know, I, I would hit these big pushes and hooks and I'm in the, you know, one, I love wildlife, but two, I'm ending up in the woods a lot. And, and I'm not the only one, I mean, the greatest in the world are banging the ball into the woods and into the water and stuff. So, you know, there was something, there was something in there, the, the, the humor sort of being incredulous, if you will and i really wanted to develop that so then i started to research um what I, I started in the states i started in florida and i started to research where are golfers running into wildlife where do they run into rattlesnakes moose potentially wolves potentially bears beehives you know where do, where do humans get stung basically through this endeavor this sort of you know this stylized you know many evolutionary generations away from sort of spear hunting, you know, if you will, if if you can draw a line from spear hunting to golf if 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 we could say such a thing.
0: I I guess we could, yeah.
1: Well, well bear with me. But um this is my job. No, I lo- I love it. I
0: want to talk more about that too.
1: You know, and I and I and I really so I found these places. I started with the wildlife. The idea grew a bit more. And then one of the things that that's really expressed more in bad lies than in lost balls Is I got really interested in the language on golf balls. So I was interested, you know, it was like found poetry and I've, I found some myself. I'm a inveterate golf ball (laughs) hunter. And then I bought some on eBay, you know, I'd go hunting on eBay and, and sometimes thrift stores, but, but, you know, I started finding golf balls with these like goofy messages, you know, which, which circle back to of, you know, the humor in golf. I mean, you know l wants to play golf with somebody that does a right. sense of humor and and golf has its own language, its vocabulary and and then all this other stuff um and so there's two parts. the one is you know the foundations was you know golfers meeting wildlife. this game played in nature, and then the other was the language around the game and And for me, that you know those were like my those were my hooks that was the foundation yeah. and and out I went, and 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 then the explorer part is sort of, if you don't look, you don't find a damn thing. When you start looking, you find something, it leads somebody else. Somebody says, you gotta call so-and-so. You go meet somebody. You know, this is very photojournalist, and they say, well, actually, you need to go here and see this, and, and that was the fun of it, you know? That was, you know, then people are saying, oh, you gotta, you know, people have their favorite right. courses. And the greatest hits courses are easy. I went to a number of them, played them, awesome. But in you know, a lot of these out-of-the-way places where you have like out, like Barra and the outcrops in the middle of the fairway, you know, it's enough. You have 60 mile an hour winds and then your ball like boings off. I don't know. I just, you know, so it's not totally some people. Um, I actually got them um, invited to Geneva at one point after the book came out to talk to Rolex about doing a campaign for them. And I remember the the, the head of the, I guess it was the marketing team or something was like, he said, you know, he was Swiss, but he used what's really English language. And he said, I think you're just taking the piss out of the game. I don't, I don't, I don't think we can work with you. <laughs> and I, I'm not taking the piss out of the game. I love the game. <laughs> I didn't get the gig and I didn't get the watch, but you know, so what?
0: <laughs> <laughs> but here's the thing. No, because when I look at these pictures, when I look at your work, there is, yeah, one of it's certainly, there's a humor element, but there's also a real honesty, to it right like like you've said you're you're searching I think you're finding a truth there that we don't otherwise portray in a lot of golf imagery right um the view from the woods or the view from that lie you know which scares us to death or you know these moments of I mean yeah some are totally sort of shocking in uh in their composition of of the scenario is, is is quite grabbing but there's a truth to it, right? I, I think there's a, a real honesty in in actually what you're portraying
1: well I mean thank you know I make these pictures they they do something for me and then you're sharing it with the world and so I'm interested in what you see you know i'm not i'm not um I'm much more interested in you know which which you pressed you know your own response to it. I'm much more interested in like volleying the stuff out into the world to me that's communication it's a kind of it's kind of long-distance communication, I suppose, but I like that. And and I think, you know, most humor, most comedy, if, if there isn't an underlying truth, it's not funny. I mean, you know, George Carlin's talking truth, and you're laughing your socks off. Yeah, laughter, yeah.
0: I mean, laughter to me has always been about recognition, right? That recognition of uh, of relating to something or finding some truth in it. And so I look at your, your photographs. I laugh, but I also see... I mean, you're telling the bigger story around golf. And I think a lot of times in golf narrative or in golf photography, you see, you know, T fairway green, right? And and that's like, that's where the story is. And something that I think why the golfer's journal has been successful um, is our writing and our stories and our photography aren't just sort of stuck in the fairway, if you will, you know, because the stories are elsewhere. The stories are the bear in the woods. The stories are the raccoon on top of your golf cart. Yeah. Uh, you know, how you found that lie in that cow pasture. I mean, that's, that's a story um, that I made another par. is,
1: is and, and we're 100, you know, we're, we're 170 years or something like that. Hundred. Yeah, that's about right. 170 years into photography. And whatever the topic is, so much has been done. We've seen so many images. The low-hanging fruit's been picked right and so i mean i love what the magazine's doing and I, I like you know and once you open that door i think which is kind of what i explained like for me going from upstream to lost Falls and onward you know once you open up that that way of of looking there's kind of no going back and you know, that's central to i think to what an artist does an artist now a contemporary artist is it's you know i mean that's kind of what artists are doing it's not is asking questions and pushing the buttons and seeing what happens so it's you know i I think if if i hadn't gone into the arts the way i did then i wouldn't have had the mindset to make those photos
0: yeah absolutely um what are some of your favorites when you think about your work on uh lost balls and bad lies
1: for me you know because i obviously i remember the situation so a lot of it you know situationally the you know the the grizzly bear shot was just a fabulous thing to pull off and so you know so exciting and and even though it was staged you know <laughs> and and that's you know spoken about in the in the magazine bit you know when the call went out for the bear to do its thing, the guys on the green—I mean, nobody was very comfortable with this dead bear being on the green anyway. There was the handler and stuff, um, so that was exciting. Um, I, you know, I love those Corara where the balls and that fresh cow pie. I mean, I really like those. But there were, yeah, there were many. There were when I was when I got into the the um, the, the rare golf balls in the language. Then I got introduced to Dick Esty, who. He passed away not so long ago, but he had the best private collection of golf balls outside of the uh, Sanders. And um, he was really generous. And uh, I mean, he had he lived in Portland. And had a, a, his guest room was basically a, a, a golf museum. Um, totally world class, um, you know, conditions for it. And you know, you got to sleep in. This, so he just like sleep in his basically his golf museum guest room. And I set up lights and shot. That was a whole nother thing. To, I mean, I'm I'm really interested in ancient history. I'm interested in time, and you know, to be able to hold like a golf ball and photograph it. That was that was another part of it that was very interesting. And and so the the, the again, I mean, these are you know, I'm 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 weaving a big uh, complicated web. But you know, time. I mean, when you get into SETI and thinking about space and NASA. I mean, one you're thinking about the largest scales of time and space but there's also you know sort of folding it back to kind of golf there is almost an absurdity to it i mean and there's so often in golf you know golfers we comment on how absurd it is what we do you know the search for et is also somewhat absurd but you know as humans we're driven to do these things um you know i got one of those golf balls one of those um man on the moon golf balls that were issued in the early seventies. I thought that was pretty neat. Wow. You know, memorializing obviously the, the, the golf shots on the moon. Um, but, it, but the, the wildlife, the, the, shot with the, the, the rattlesnake in, in Arizona, that was true. I yeah. believe, yeah, those were really fun to do because there was a hole where there were just a lot of rattlesnakes and, um, but something that was, it, it um, spoken about in in the story in the magazine, but I would maybe I'd just open up a little. Is when I first went down, and I was staying with my dad, who was uh, living in a gated golf community in Florida. And one we he was out, you know, he was in his 70s, and and he wasn't in very good health. But I would go out and golf with his buddies, and I just thought it was amazing to, you know, have these guys in their 70s and they're cursing at the golf ball like you know they think they should be hitting Tiger Woods shots. So. There was an absurdity to that that i i I enjoyed (laughs) but then that course had a lot of wetlands and the thing is that when i i I would go out in you know i'd put on rubber boots and go out and i was just looking because i like to you know look at nature but it was literally like 15 feet into the wetlands it was just solid solid golf balls so the geologist me is thinking you know, in some future there's, it's going to be stratigraphy. It's like, you know, instead of the ruins of Pompeii in some future, you know, some future <laughs> archeologist of humans survive that long, there's going to be like these layers of, of, of golf balls that, have, you know, turned into rock. Right. And, you know, it just struck me as really funny. I mean, you know, there, there were no kids collecting and selling golf balls there. So they just accumulated.
0: Yeah. Someday fossilized golf balls on the, uh, on the wall of, yeah, some museum yeah. explaining, trying to explain our <laughs> our time. There's a great quote in the story that I just wanted you to elaborate on, where it says, "I was interested in golf as a game in nature. We've evolved from spearing and shooting animals with bows and arrows to a place where it's a game where you don't actually get any get any meat from it, depending on how you break it down. How do we get from? This is fascinating, and I think it's, I think you're spot on. Uh, but how do we get from? spear hunting to trying to knock pins down
1: well if you imagine early peoples like not let's not just say neolithic for example but if we imagine sheep herders or shepherds in in the british isles somewhere and you know the days are long and you know (laughs) entertainment's slight and you could imagine them you know fashioning a stick and hitting a rock into rabbit holes i'm not uh invested in whether it's the truth of where golf came from or not but i think you know that shepherd would probably throw rocks at grouse or ptarmigan and you know i lived one summer with um spent a few trips one summer with inuits and you'd see how kids the kids in the arctic are learning how to you know hit a bird with a rock and throw a pointed stick at you know, i think it's fair to say that it evolved out of out of that process and you know, the the meat thing is you know tournament player making a big paycheck or being sponsored is you know in a sense that's the meat you know that is the meat I love that idea
0: because it just yeah no it just points to golf in our DNA right i mean any target endeavor right you know however far we go back and um sure. to you know slinging a rock uh
1: throw frisbee like you go boomerang right. You know, boomerang right like a boomerang's thousands years old out of from aborigines uh you know you go to frisbee you know yeah yeah. i mean i i I don't think that's such a um i don't think that's such a hard extension
0: i agree that you know it's in our dna to want to hit the target and that there's something evolutionary and yeah Yeah. and about our survival in it which uh helps explain a little bit about golf and competitive
1: nature on a golf course, right? You add that. I mean, if it. you think of it as like pro golf, of course, you go, "Yeah." It's... So, where does that come from? I mean, that's where it comes from. It's, I mean, I think it's, it's, you know, word competition comes from—the need to survive in early yeah. humans. Yeah. And um so, let me. um There's a story I'd like. There's a story I'd like to tell you. It's. It might have appeared in in print once, but I'll tell you with voice, if I may. It's a. It's a. It's a. Please. A little bit of a step away. Okay, so so when I had the first idea for the golf book, um, just come off doing a commission, an environmental commission um, in Dutchess County in New York. And uh, the woman I'd worked with who was the uh, the designer on that book project um, said, so, you know, what are you going to do next? You know, we're both freelancers. And I said, well, I just had this idea for a golf book. And she looked at me, like turned up nose and just went, I hate golf. <laughs> And she's like, I can't believe you're going to do that. And I'm like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Just listen to my idea. So I said, you know, this is my idea. It's called Lost Balls. And I'm thinking I'll maybe approach a, a writer to, I often did that with magazine stories. I would approach writers that I admired to see if they'd work with me on magazine stories where I'd photograph and they'd write essays. I, I did many with all kinds of writers. And I said, you know, maybe like a John Updike or something. And she looked, I mean, she's a good friend Look at me. So it's a little tongue in cheek, but I'm an ardent environmentalist who grew up, you know, in a golf family near Boston, affluent. And she said, would you like me to introduce you to John Upduck? I'm like, what? She said, my dad golfs with him every Tuesday. So I went to, uh, so Jamie told her dad the story. Dad introduced, invited me to golf at um, Myopia Hunt Club. Old club in Massachusetts. I don't know if you. I was about
0: to say, it must be myopia because that's where Uptight played. But right. When
1: I, I was going to ask you, how did you get Uptight to be part of that book? So okay, so here's the, the. I mean, it was beautiful, kind of story of like, another great, like serendipity, and um, so I went there. Have you been to? Have you ever been there? It's it's very I understated. Have. It's like, like walking
0: back yeah. in time. Yeah. Right. So it's it very It's an so, old. Yeah. yeah.
1: So I go in there to the clubhouse. And I sit down with Dick, who's Jamie's dad, uh, uh, and, and um, uh, Jamie's dad, and then who's Dick, and then John Updike comes in, and he, and he says, he, he says to me, he was so nice. He goes, "You got good connections, getting lunch with me," and he, you know, was totally laughing about it. <laughs> and he said, he, he said, he said, but he goes, "But listen, um, club rules. You know, we can have no papers on the table. You can't, because you can't do business here." I'm like, okay. And he said, and, and by the way, like, I know we're going to play it and that's great. And, and um, I'm happy to, but he's, he said, you know, I've written everything I have to write about golf. I mean, the, you know, golf dreams had come out not too long, too much before that. And that was, you know, the compilation right. of all the golf essays he'd written for the New Yorker. So he said, I, I just don't have anything more to write about golf. And I said, so I got it, Mr. Uptick. I just, can I show you what I'm doing? And he said, call me John and sure. And he said, <laughs> and then he said, okay, we're going to have papers on the table, but not for very long. And um, I said, well, I might not even have to show you the pictures. I said, the, 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 the title for the book that I've imagined is Lost Balls. And, and so I went like that, and, and I'm about to s- explain. And he looked at me and he said, I never wrote that essay. I can't believe it. I never wrote the essay about Lost Balls. I'm in. So he hadn't even seen a photograph. Oh. He's done the compendium of any. So like, again, the most obvious thing. Oh, my God. The gosh. thing that's right in front of us, right? So that was, I mean, I get chills telling that story. Right. I just had chills telling you. And so he, and he goes, and he's gone. So I think I can tell the full story. It's just kind of good to have it recorded. So he goes, okay, so listen, this is how it's going to go. So I haven't even shown him a picture. And all of a sudden I'm working with John Updike. And um, and so he said, uh, he said, I know there's not a lot of, money in these things, and and that's just fine. But he said, listen, I'm on my, (laughs) I'm gonna say that it's at risk to myself, but he said, my third wife won't let me, I'm on something like, I'm on my third wife. He wasn't disrespectful, but he said, I'm on my third wife and she won't let me do anything that isn't for real money. And I know this isn't for real money. So this is how this is gonna go. We're gonna do all of our communication through my barber. And I go to the barber like every second Wednesday. So he scribbles down on paper his barber's address. So the the con, I, what you know, I, I put together a book dummy and went out and had some bidding on it. And and little brown, little brown, you know, had the strongest bid. So I'm doing the book. So we send the the contract to the barber shop, and it comes back. And then um, and then a month later, I get this envelope in the mail, and it's that kind of airmail envelope that used to have the red and blue stripes along the <laughs> perimeter of it. Right. And I from John Updike and I open it up, and it's the handwritten essay that was the foreword for the book. And you know, I gave it to my editor, great editor. Not a word was changed in it. So the foreword in Lost Balls, you know, was that. And obviously, I oh have that goodness. letter. And so that was just like that was amazing. And then I went I, for a couple, and until he passed away, I would um, you know he invited me back, and I'd play there once every year. I'd play with him and Dick, Jamie's dad, and we'd go out and play, and that was really neat. And he loved the book, but. Anyway, that was that was how it came to be to work with John Updike. What that, a trip. <laughs> that
0: is fantastic. And what a treasure to have that letter. And and yeah. of course and and just to have it go right into the book. Yeah, who's going to edit Updike. But for a handwritten note to go straight into a published book, uh that's oh that's so cool.
1: But but really that that you know just that thing where it it was, you know, obviously it was you know the explorer made found a little a little niche a little a little territory that hadn't been mined and and that you know wild i mean i don't know how many essays he wrote on golf but a hundred hundreds so that was really that was really neat and um so so another one you know um Something that we both established we have interest in is 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 Carn Bell Mullet. You know, one of my favorite golf courses.
0: Yeah. How did you find yourself at Carn? Yeah. I mean, and I think for both of us to have said, when I saw that you, you know, were into Carn and Askernish, and said, well, that puts us in a pretty small club. Uh, John Garrity, Sports Illustrated, and some other people, uh, yeah. you know, hold those two courses uh, and their their sort of raw beauty um, on, put them on quite a pedestal. Um, how did Karn and ask how did they come into your life?
1: Well, I, you know, I, I mean, obviously I'd been reading what I could and, and, um, you know, so one of the trips I made was, you know, I really wanted to do Northwest Ireland and, um, and that was another, you know, uh, you know, so I went out, I mean, I had my backpack of gear and I went up there and, you know, whatever, got a, a room for a few nights at the local pub. And then i went out in the out on the course and you know i just loved it right away and was out uh, photographing and i came in and um i think there were like two people in the you know in the in the sort of clubhouse there i mean you know kind of makeshift clubhouse and one of them was uh jim eng the great uh golf course architect and so jim had been uh you know hired to do uh, to, to redo the back nine, I think it was. Anyway, he was hired to do, um, um, you know, a a tasteful makeover. And so then we start, we became friends and started playing and I ended up playing a number of places with him. He's based in Colorado, but, you know, it was really fun to, I didn't know, um, you know, I didn't know top shelf, any top shelf golf or and He's a great one. So, you know, besides being in love with that course, you know, this was another, you know, another kind of relationship, a friendship came from just, you know, hiking around on this golf course. And but that style of golf, I really I really like that style of golf. It's, it's closer to the, the, you know, the the early game I, and, you know, kind of circling back to what we're talking about, just you feel it's an early. It's a primitive game. And the way I golf now and have been for last, well, really all, all this period you know, I'm, I'm not that concerned with keeping score. I mean, some years I sort of had a handicap and some I didn't. And, you know, you're playing Karn. That's not a good place to work on your handicap. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I just didn't care that much. You know, I mean. It's a good place for lost balls. Oh, my God. So um, really fun.
0: And, and it's funny you bring up Jim Eng. Um He did the. He did the first designs for the new nine at Carn at um the Kilmore 9 which is now they would the core of the nine holes they put through the middle of the property after Eddie Hackett yeah. and uh and Jim started that process and and I think Allie McIntosh finished it off and it was a long um but they got it done and and it's uh have you been back to play the new nine?
1: I was back Shortly after, but I haven't been back in a long time. Even though they gave me an honorary lifetime membership, I haven't been back in quite a while. And there's been a bunch of changes, and yeah, and it was dramatic, and the whole, yeah. you know, as those things I suppose can be. But um, I haven't been back in recent times. But if I was to go golfing, I mean, if it was in the U.S., I'd I'd go to Bandon Dunes. If it was, you know, if it was anywhere, that's where I would go first to to, to Bell Mullet. Yeah, me too.
0: I thought I was the only only honorary lifetime member. Charles, now I just give them away to anybody. <laughs> Jeez, are you? I I am one. Yeah, I mean I wrote about them at length in a course called Ireland, and we actually had a big initiative here through the Golfers Journal. Uh, we did a, a pandemic diary to here uh, with their chairman uh, Jerry Maguire around the pandemic and and all the business that they lost and in the and in the, in the dire straits they were in, and oh. our listeners through purchasing lifetime memberships and advanced tee times raised a hundred thousand dollars for them. Um, and, and have really helped that's them beautiful. stem the tide. It's so cool. Yeah. So it, it all comes back to Karn.
1: I can't wait. I can't, you know, I dropped out. I mean, I dropped out of the golf because as you know, I have a few other sort of conversations or interests a few, underway, but yeah. I, I will read what you wrote. I can't wait. <laughs> no, yeah, but yeah,
0: but yeah, yeah. And that's, but if you do get back, play the, the new nine, the gym started they now they're have incorporated that with the back nine of the uh of the hacker course and now that's the wild atlantic way course and so now they kind of have like two and a half golf courses now or and so they're trying to make it so you can basically bell mullet will be a, a you know a, a stay over destination or two night destination and that's that's our hope for them and um but yeah that that the new nine is
1: extraordinary um Well, the next time I go, the next time I go, I will obviously stay several days and play a bunch. Well, let me know when
0: you do, um, because I'm, when I'm in the summertime, I'm
1: I'm over there every summer, except aside from
0: this summer, but man, because I could listen to you all day, Charles. I think honestly, like, where do you, all these different interests, right? And these things that, I mean, I'd love to know where it all comes from, but that's, you're, you're, you're interested in the world around you, right? I mean, as, as all artist adventurers should be.
1: I'm cur- I'm a curious guy.
0: You know, I, and that's what's just so wonderful listening to you because when I teach writing and, and that's something, you know, that's the thing that I always tell my students is there's only so much that I can show you or teach you, but you really have to cultivate, cultivate and embrace your curiosity. You know, and those questions, why do people do the things that they do, right? That's what it's all about. Um, and the students
1: who have that I think you have to leap. You also have to leap sometimes. I mean, you just you have to it's not leap without looking. But, you know, in order to do it, you got to you got to get in and see if there's anything there. And I think, Always. you know, I'd be in a similar situation. I mean, I, I lecture at universities. I haven't been a teacher, although I'm about to start teaching in Kyoto. Um, and in in fact, you know, the the core of what I'm teaching is what you just said, is how to be how to be creative, how to find that thing beyond the, you know, if it's in the arts, whether writing or visual arts beyond technique, you know, how do you, how do you find that thing you're passionate about? And I think, you know, it could be that, you know, for young people that want to see the eye, you know, have a clear path when, and, and I don't think it is, you know, it it isn't a clear path. I mean, there is risk, you know, and, and, you know, there's plenty of, of rabbit holes I've gone down that hadn't resulted in the book or the exhibition. I mean, you know, you got that nature of adventure. You got to yeah. be willing to sort of fall flat on your face or, or make a mess or, you know, I, th- I think I mean, that's that's part of it. Do you think
0: that's um, harder to get people, young people, you know, that you, like you're going to be teaching to get them to be willing to do that, um, to get off the straight path uh or the obvious or clear path or the the easy path i guess i i don't i don't know i I wonder if that's getting um harder and harder to do in our culture where the prescription for success which i guess success is supposed to mean happiness um seems to be laid out before them you know college job salary kids die that's the plan. that's kind of, that's a dire yeah. a dire look at yeah. it. But to, but I find you know that trying to you know encourage people to you know it's it's hard to to ask a twenty one year old what are you passionate about right I mean it's easy to ask them that but it's hard to get a good answer because they're passionate generally about yeah a, about doing well right and doing well doesn't necessarily mean being an artist adventurer and I wish that it did.
1: Yeah, it was interesting. I remember like even when I was going, when I was right out of university backpacking in Southeast Asia and, you know, most of the, most of the other backpackers, I mean, I tended to go very far out and, you know, I didn't want to be around Westerners, but backpackers, it was just an amount of them were, they were Canadians and they were Kiwis and they were Israelis, Dutch not very many americans despite a much larger population base in the states and so i think you know in 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 the united states i mean there is that i mean the culture is a it's heavily capitalist culture by definition and so all those things you're saying like what is success to get out and i, mean, I remember reading like some sort of a statistic thing at one point where there had been a survey kind of like that let's just say that for argument's sake that generic 21 year old. And, and the thing most people wanted was to make a lot of money. And that's, that's just not, you know, I mean, money's good, but that, that was never my priority. I wanted to do everything else. And if I made a little money while it was doing everything else, well, that was, it was necessary to a point and it was good. But, um, yeah, I also, you know, sitting here, I have the beauty of hindsight. And so now, um, you know i'm I feel I'm still very open minded and 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 go into the world in a fresh way. that's a kind of a in a sense of discipline, but I do have the hindsight to say, well, when I took a chance there, that worked out well, and that led to another chance and so on it's so I think you know that first like mm-hmm. what is that first that that initial life experience that that helps somebody go, you know i'm gonna take a risk and i'm gonna go do x. Now, one of the things I've learned through my life, I don't know, you should tell me if you feel the same way, but often, you know, when I'd start on, let's call it a new project, it would start off thinking I'm going like I'm going that way. And then the idea would develop. And at the end of it, I was somewhere else entirely from where I thought I was going initially. So by definition, in order to embrace that way of living, you got to be willing, it, it's about going to the unknown. And the unknown could be a a rainforest full of snakes, but the the unknown could be trying to write your first novel. I mean, they're both unknowns, mm-hmm. and so you've got to be willing to you've got to be willing to go into the unknown. I, I mean, I think fundamentally, and by the way, this um, you know, I don't know that I told a story or whatever, but in Kyoto, the Kyoto University of the Arts is I'm, I'm start about to work with them this fall, and what they really want me to do is to help they're you know this is university level Their students to become excellent artists in far as far as like um in, in becoming real individuals and then you think what's happening in japanese culture where there's you know famously much more sort of pressure to toe the line um than even in the united states right and they and they have you know, very high technical schools. The students in general are very adept. The, fa- the facilities are, are the best art school facilities I've ever had. I mean, they have fabrication labs of all kinds. And basically the students there, um, I have an exhibition coming up fall 2022 at one of the great Zen temples in Kyoto, a temple that was established in the 13th century, Kenaninji. And so I'm actually, I'm going to be doing an a, a installation in the temple grounds, we're talking like the the ripped gardens are fair game, and and so you know I'm developing the idea, but basically I'm going to work two years at the university using their facilities to build my show, and I'm bringing the students along for that two years, going from inception or slightly post inception. I already have a good idea through model making, maquette making, developing the idea, of final fabricating, installing the show, marketing the show. The university even wants me to try and create some sort of um merchandising that might be something that's made through advanced 3D printing something like that. But so so this question wow. you just asked me is in fact the what I'm you know that's the challenge I'm being tasked with at the university and it's yeah it's it's it, that's I mean that's a big question a big challenge how do you do that? How do you do, how it do is. you do it? What are yeah. your what are your exercises <clears throat> like what do you do to try and c- kind of crack your students open?
0: I do a few things, you know, I try to make them, um, I try to make them a little bit uncomfortable in a, in a creative way, at least, um, Mm -hmm. asking them to, well, I I try to encourage them to fail is is one thing. And that makes them uncomfortable in terms of failing at their, at their writing or something and not being afraid to get lost. Right. And and again, this idea of, of, of wandering into the unknown, um, to try and beat out of them. I don't beat anything out of my students to be clear. Um, But to try to get, to get out of them, this idea that they're here to get a grade, you know? Um, I think that, especially in the American mindset is an important thing in a a creative writing classroom to say, okay, you, you uh, you're going to be graded on your effort, your interest, your passion, um, and your commitment to what we're doing. I'm not going to be grading your talent. So uh and that i think frees them up to take some chances and and if i can at least get students to take chances um sometimes by the end of the semester they, they they can be feeling a lot differently about writing or just about the creative life you know in general and then what i also do is i tell them you all have to study abroad because i think that's what that's for great. me i what for me that cracks the shell for the American undergraduate better than anything else is to go see the rest of the world. At that time in your life, that's how your eyes, my eyes were opened. And, and like, you know, that,
1: like, again, Great. like you said, that willingness to wander into the unknown. The other thing with, with, I could imagine, you tell me if this is right, with students is they probably think they have to write a novel, but you know, three amazing sentences are three amazing sentences. So yeah. I don't know, is that, does, does something in there ring true? very
0: true because <clears throat> and that's another thing that you're sort of trying to help a beginning writer to kind of unlearn or unthink if you will that uh when they sit down to write a story that they're writing that they are writing a novel or since cinema is now the dominant form of storytelling in our culture that they're writing a whole movie right in in the space right. of in the space of 8 pages um and to you know show them why that Is impossible and what they really what i'd really just love them to give me is a glimpse of something undeniable right just a glimpse of life and really nothing has to happen (laughs) you know i have this rule like your first story cannot have any guns no bombs no bloodshed uh just give me a glimpse of life and um and that is kind of I don't know if that's scary for them, but that make they feel like okay. If I'm my story has to have, it's got to be big. It's got to have crescendo. It's got to have big events. And it says, well, what is you know what was your day today like? And if you look closely enough at it, and you're curious enough about it, yeah, your your day is just simmering with stories. Um, and that's and that's hard for them to trust that. But it's really cool. Uh, sometimes I think when when they turn in their final stories and they've mastered that thing called subtlety, that is, uh, or, or they've or they've accepted that subtlety is important as as an artist, uh-huh. um, and and that's uh, that's kind of a I feel like a breakthrough. I think that's sort of grown up artist stuff, and uh, it's always cool to see them get that.
1: So, just speaking of writing, something I just want to share with you that was interesting for me to learn. Um, so I've I've been in influenced among other things but a lot by science fiction and starting in 2016 i did a lot of uh, showing in china i was invited over there did a big museum show it went really well and it led to a lot of opportunities i showed and or lectured in nine cities and and my sort of my current the things i'm exploring the way i'm showing i mean in some ways um i had better response in 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 china than in the west in some ways i mean it really kind of lit on fire and you know, just the ideas I was interested in were ideas in China. But one of the things I learned that I, you may or may not know, but I think you'll find curious, one of the things I learned working in China is that unlike, so so let me just say that in the West, and again, these are like these are things that are right in front of us, but they're so ubiquitous that we don't even see them. In the West, you know, historically, traditionally science fiction was like a bastard brother of literature right you wouldn't you wouldn't say like you wouldn't put jg ballard in the same paragraph as ernest hemingway right and you could just say well that's the way it is but you could also go wait a second like why is that you know some of our greatest minds are futurists are relegated to some other you know they're, they're like compartmentalized well what i found out is in china that that division does not exist their, chi- their science fiction writers are among their top writers, and they just don't, they just don't draw those lines. And, and right now, if you're following it, I mean, it's this last decade even has been the golden age of Chinese science fiction. Chinese science fiction writers are winning the greatest awards, the Hugo and so forth in in science fiction. And part of that, I think, is because there's a couple of things, and these are my theories. One is, you know, it's not a Judeo-Christian underlaid philosophy. And, um, you know, you could, I mean, that one can be broken down, you know, we don't even need to go there. Although Judeo-Christian philosophy does circle back into golf, we can, we (laughs) could go back to that. But, um, but it was also a frontier. I mean, this last period with this incredible growth in China, you know, there, it was just, it was more of a frontier situation. And I, and, you know, I also found, frankly, personally, that, you know, I just do better in, in front i like a frontier situation better and so i would say china was that and and still is that and um and then you know where i'm working in japan it's very much you know my the work that i'm doing now is it's very much like science fiction and and there's very little of that in contemporary art in the west there there's some i mean i it's it's limited enough i know the players um but anyway, that was just a, that was an interesting thing to, and I, I just wanted to share that with you is that it is right. Isn't that a curious thing? It is. And, um,
0: yeah, the, in, in our, especially being in academia, um,
1: more, there's more and more
0: respect for, you know, science fiction writers, but, but they still would be considered genre fiction. Right. Um, right. Where there's capital L literary fiction, which is what we're supposed to teach right. and, uh, if we wander off into the genres, that's its own sort of special class. It's usually the class all the students want to take, but um, nonetheless, uh, can we, Charles, since you just hinted at tying Judeo-Christian traditions back to golf, I think that's a good way to finish our conversation. If you can walk me down that path, I would love it.
1: (laughs) Well, what comes to mind with Judeo-Christian, you know, guilt, (laughs) I mean, guilt would come up right away. I mean, yeah wow i think it's and this isn't Judeo, but it, but you never you know it's and it's this is a cliche but you never master it do you it's just like the game's over and fuck you could have had a hole in one it's just like done you got to go play the game again tomorrow or or next week um
0: you do you do i was talking um who was i speaking with this about this like psycho- the sort of psychological phenomenon of that golf sort of mimics some laboratory experiments where if you give the lab rat every time it hits the button, if it gets a treat, um you know you condition it to know it's going to get the treat, but if you hold the treat back every once in a while, it'll hit it'll hit hit the button forever. And I think golf is <laughs> is sort of like that, right? if we got if we caught the rabbit, if we were the greyhound who caught the rabbit, we'd never run again. um but that it gives us sort of just enough to believe that maybe tomorrow and that's yeah uh you know that's something that's god I'm, who knows i i've made i tried to make a career out of it right uh that may, that maybe
1: tomorrow well i remember it, so you know when i went into geology one that was you know as, as a young golfer i was a, i was good i wasn't very good and tournament play i wasn't when i was younger you know I'd i'd be you know i'd be playing really well and then like the 13th hole i'd take a triple bogey and i could never recover you know my, i didn't have control of my mind and i could never i would it would really screw me up and so you know i, I wasn't going to be a pro golfer that was for that was totally clear and then when i got into geology you know exploration geology a senior geologist who i really respected and worked with one summer he was like a billy goat he was amazing they said you know very few geologists ever find a deposit that actually becomes a mine. And then I got into photography, and photography, because you can edit, you only see my best shots, you don't see my mistakes. And I thought, okay. you know, and I actually am very much like that in golf. I'm, I hit amazing shots, but I'm much more like a pinch hitter kind of guy. I don't often put the whole <laughs> round together. And that's part of my wiring is I'm just, you know, with a camera, I, I just, you only see my best shots and I kind of like it that way in my, you know, my professional sphere. And I would say the same as, you know, in the, in the art, um, maybe the art, it's not always so clear what is a successful thing and what is not. But, um, yeah, that, that, that's an interesting aspect to it. You know, it is an interesting aspect. It is.
0: I think is. As golfers, we could all use a little more editing in our games, for sure. We can mm. all relate to that. Charles, I can't thank you enough for the time. <laughs> Thanks, <Next> Tom. <laughs> for sharing. And just as we wandered around through so many different ideas, I, that's exactly how I hope this would go. Because, again, in, in in exploring your work and your interests, the the breadth of it is extraordinary. And it's just an honor Um to speak with someone like yourself. And uh, I, I can't wait to see what you're up to next.
1: Well, thanks, Tom. I mean, you're going to see some things because I actually sent you a box of a few books this morning. And I, awesome. you know, I love the game. And I was just to, to return to it with like this, you know, the story and, and this podcast. It's, you know, I, I'm, I'm really grateful for it. I'm, I, I really like it. And it's, you know, even though the books came out 15 years ago, I mean, they continue to get good play but i just it's 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 they really do. a pleasure to to return to it and also just honestly to to see it being received well that i'm hopefully making you know helping people laugh and and also but also you know to to some of what we're speaking about here is also maybe just look a little bit you know look a little bit deeper about what's going on um you know it's it's, it's like the, it's a volley you know we're volleying stuff out into the universe see what the heck happens but um thanks thank you you're 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 very good at this, so thank you.
0: <laughs> thank you, Charles. I can't wait. We're going to teach you. I would, to, I would love I to play Karn.
1: Yeah, I we're would. I'm. I'm uh, there's a bunch of changes underway. It's not, and we're not going this summer. That's pretty clear. But, um, but I would very sincerely right. love to go, and I would love to go and play. You know, I'd love to go golfing with you over there, and and uh, so let's let's you know put that on the sort of two year burner.
0: You're on you're on well good luck with the move good luck with with everything you've got going on and we, anytime you're welcome back on the golf Eternal podcast charles
1: take care tom